0: Father God, again, we thank you for this beautiful day that you have created. We thank you, Father, that your mercies are new every morning. We thank you, Father, that old things are passed away when we are in Christ and that all things become new. I would ask as we study this lesson on the salvation call of Matthew, that you would help us, Lord, to, be, to, to be a, have a fixed understanding of our faith that with Jesus Christ nothing is impossible. He can take a tax collector and make him into an apostle. And that is such an incredible miracle and such a testimony to your grace, Father. We know that Christ can change any heart and he can make all things new. And therefore we should never ever think that some people are just too too bad, too far too far gone to be saved. We should commit ourselves to be persistent, to keep on praying, even for the souls of the worst, because When Christ, by the power of the spoken word and the Holy Spirit, says, follow me, he can make even the hardest and the most sinful obey. None of us should keep ourselves away from coming to Christ simply because we feel we're not good enough. And I I know that happens so many times. People feel like they they have to clean up their lives. But we know, Father, that, that there is nothing that we can possibly do that is unforgivable, and that we are—we um, can, ne- we should never think of ourselves as being too bad and too unworthy, because it's really precisely that quality that um, he is looking for. It's precisely for such sin-sick souls that he came into this world. So, if we feel this way about ourselves, as the Apostle Paul said, he was the chief of sinners, then this is good, because this is the one principal qualification. For coming to Christ is our deep sense of our own sin, our poverty of spirit. And that's the lesson we will learn this morning. We pray your Holy Spirit will teach us, Lord, that Jesus Christ indeed has authority over forsaken sinners to lead them to himself. And I pray, Lord, that you would put the clutter from our minds and help us to focus on what you have for each of us individually through your word. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are on lesson 23, the second part of lesson number 23. The account of the seventh recorded miracle in our chronological Life of Christ study, which was the forgiveness of the sins of the paralytic who was lowered through the roof of Peter's house, and then, of course, not only the forgiveness of his sins, but the healing of his body. That's what we looked at in part one of lesson 23. Well, that seventh recorded miracle is followed immediately in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, by the Lord's seventh recorded call of one of his 12 apostles. And this one is Levi. His name was originally Levi. It was turned, changed to Matthew. And I thought that was interesting. We did discuss our seventh recorded miracle last night, uh, last night, last time, which was the forgiveness of the sins of the paralytic. And now we're looking at the seventh call of an apostle. The first six apostles called to the Lord Jesus Christ were, remember the order? And you can find them all in John chapter 1. We had Andrew and um, John, and then we had Peter and James, and we had Philip and Nathaniel. So we've only seen the call of six. Now that doesn't mean some of the other ones weren't called in the meantime, but the Holy Spirit only inspired the gospel writers to include the calling of seven of them. The other five, we don't know how they were called to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not given that information. We know they were, but we don't have the the details. We only have the details of seven, and again, isn't that interesting, because he knew that that seven seven is the number of perfection and completion. Even though there were twelve, um, it was the complete and perfect group that the Lord Jesus Christ called out to be his his apostles. If you get that, all right. So anyway, the Holy Spirit who inspired the writing of all three of these counts that we find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke on the salvation call of Levi keeps us focused on the subject of Christ's absolute and supreme authority to forgive sins. You know, the whole purpose of the Lord's coming, his first coming to earth, was to do what? To deal with To deal with sin, because that's the source of all of our problems, is sin. Directly or indirectly, the source of all of our problems is sin. Now, just as in the case of the, uh, the paralyzed man... Matthew, formerly called Levi, the publican, needed first and foremost to be healed by Jesus Christ spiritually. Just as the paralytic was a sinner in need of salvation, so was Levi a needy sinner. And the other people who we will see appear in this account, those will be his friends who are invited to a feast which he hosts in his home. And those friends are also in, uh, in need of Christ's salvation because they're called tax collectors and sinners. And you'll find out why tax collectors were sinners in a minute. All right, so with that little introduction, let's look at Christ's authority over forsaken sinners. All right, so let's look at Matthew 9. That's- Turn to Matthew 9 and read his own account. This is interesting. This is his very, because, you know, this, the the calling out of Levi is the calling out of Matthew, our gospel author here. So this is his own account of his salvation call, and you'll see how modest he is about everything. And then we could also read Mark, but we won't. We'll just uh, read Luke's account over in chapter 5. So let's begin with Matthew 9, if you're there. And I'm going to read verses 9 through 13. It says, And as Jesus passed forth from thence, this is you know after he had healed the paralytic, he's in the town of Capernaum, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. And he saith unto him, Follow me. And he arose and followed him. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat in the house, Behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto his disciples, Why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay, now if you'll flip over quickly to Luke 5. Let's look at Luke's account of this same story here. And we'll look at verses 27 to 32. Luke says, And after these things, he, Jesus, went forth and saw a publican named Levi sitting at the receipt of custom. And he said unto him, Follow me. And he left all, rose up, and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his own house. And there was a great company of publicans and others that sat down with them. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do ye eat and drink with publicans and sinners? And Jesus answering said unto them, They that are whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. When he says, I came not to call the righteous, he's talking about those who think they are righteous. All right, then you can probably go back to Matthew. Although I'll be talking about all three of the accounts as we discuss this. Sometime after the healing of the paralytic, we are told that Jesus went forth again by the seaside. This is actually in Mark's account, Mark 2, verse 13. It says he went forth again by the seaside, which would speak of the Sea of Galilee. And it says there, and all the multitude resorted, which is given in the imperfect tense in the Greek, all the multitude resorted unto him, and he taught, also given in the imperfect tense, he taught them. So in the original Greek, what that actually literally means in Mark 2:13 it means that the crowd as he's walking you know along the seashore there the crowd kept on coming to him and he kept on teaching them and so it appears that successive groups of people kept coming out to the lord they never left him alone they kept coming out to him and when they did each of those groups received what his teaching It says, and he taught them, and it means he kept on teaching them. So each group received his teaching. The Lord, you know, had to be weary of talking so much, but he made sure, absolute sure, that whoever came out to him received his word. Now, as he was going along on his way, we learned that he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. I don't know if that was in our accounts. I think this might be over in Mark 2. Also, Mark 2, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, who was sitting at the receipt of custom. And that's a phrase which tells us that Levi, who was a Jew, was a tax collector, also known as a publican. Tax collectors and publicans, one and the same. Just two different words. Now, this in itself is really incredible because... It's one of the very last occupations that you would expect to see from a man the Lord would choose to become one of his apostles, as well as the author of the very first book of the New Testament, the book that opens the New Testament. It's the last person. It would be like, um, if, if it was comparable to females, it would be like picking a prostitute. Matthew's gospel account of Christ, remember, was written with, what kind of reader in mind? Remember how each one of the Gospels was written with a particular reader in mind? For example, Mark was written primarily to Roman readers. Okay, Matthew was written primarily with Jewish readers in mind. It was written in love uh, to Matthew's own people, trying to convince them by way of the use of some 99 quotes from the Old Testament and some 30 allusions to the uh, Old Testament, he was trying to convince his own people in love that Jesus Christ is their long-awaited king, uh, the king of the Jews, the, the son of God, the Messiah. You know, actually, he quotes his quotes from the Old Testament are more than if you put math, uh, Mark luke and john together he quotes more from the old testament than all three of the other gospel writers he is trying to tell his people because he loves his people and that's the paradox of it because they so hated him as a tax collector but he in return after christ came into his heart so loved them that he wanted them to find the one he found or the one who found him i should say the fulfiller of the entire old testament jesus christ now tax collectors were about the most despised people in all of Israel. They were looked upon as being lower than even the much-hated Herodians. Remember who the Herodians were when we discussed the various sects, S-E-C-T-S, of Israel? Herodians were Jewish people who, who brown-nosed the Herods, you know, the dynasty of the Herods. The Herods had no business ruling over Israel because they weren't even from the line of... Uh, of uh, Jacob. They were, they, were, they were descendants of Esau. They were uh, So, But tax collectors were despised even more than Herodians. Tax collectors received more scorn from the Jewish people than even the occupying Roman soldiers. It's amazing how low they were thought of by the, pe- the people. You see, they were men, I'm speaking now really of Jewish tax collectors, they were men who, although it's true of the Gentile tax collectors too, that they actually bought their positions. They, they had to pay for their tax franchise. And who did they, they buy them or bid for them or uh, bribe for them? Who did they bribe to? Rome, right? They bought their position from Rome. And just collaborating with the occupying oppressors of Israel alone was enough for a man especially a jewish man to be ostracized by his own people however when you throw in the fact that tax collectors also grew very rich by extorting more than the legitimate ascribed amount of tax in order to do what to line their own pockets when you throw that in then you get an idea why they were so very much hated i mean none of us like paying taxes right anybody in here like paying your taxes (laughs) I think my husband works. I, th- I think they figured it out. Just, they they work like till May just to pay for taxes. It's incredible. Uh, but when you when you think of tax collectors collecting more than than we need to pay and then taking that to make themselves rich, then you understand the situation. There was an unspoken agreement with Rome that these tax collectors could assess these additional amounts and. Uh, and keep a percentage of the extra. So tax collectors were known for being greedy men. Furthermore, many of them had mafia-like tactics. It's almost like the mafia back in those days. They would use thugs in order to strong-arm money from the people. You know, if they didn't pay or didn't pay the extra, they'd send thugs to their home and beat them up in order to get the money. Many of the tax collectors were therefore unprincipled scoundrels. They were greedy and they were despicable. Now this is not to say that Levi or Matthew was quite this bad, but um, he could have been. But all we, we do know he was a ta- tax collector. We do know also that um, there were three types of tax collectors. Uh, there was really two types, but the second type had two types, so I'll say there were three types. And he was the, <laughs> he was the bottom of the bottom he was the one who who dealt directly with the people, so he would be the one that, that they would scorn the most, because the other tax collectors had people working under them, so the people never saw them. But Matthew's type, and a chief tax collector was such a man as Zacchaeus. If you remember in the scriptures, it tells us he was a chief tax collector. He didn't really see the people face to face and collect the money, but Matthew did. So he received the most scorn. Um, Anyway, we know that he was a tax collector, no doubt about that. We know he was rich because of the feast that he held for many, a great company of people which attended. And uh, therefore, we know that he um, did, we also know that he did choose his occupation at the expense of some very significant things. He had to have been, therefore, to a significant degree, he had to have been unscrupulous and he had to have been definitely materialistic. Now, when we find out how many different taxes there were, we can get even a better understanding why the publicans were so hated, because they were the ones that had had to collect these. There were so many, I can't get them all on the page. (laughs) Um, There was a very oppressive ground or land tax, which was actually one-tenth of a man's grain, and also one-fifth of his fruit or his grapes. That was very, very oppressive, and the people, of course, hated paying it. There was an income tax, which was 1% of a person's income, and there was a poll tax, and uh, that was imposed on all males, as you see up here, 14 to 65 years of age, and all females, 12 to 65 years of age. So the females had to pay the tax longer than the men did. Now, those were the three main taxes, and they were set by the... um, by Rome, they they were they were set by official assessments, so there wasn't a lot of graft involved at this level. So, in other words, that was a set amount, and very seldom did the tax collectors collect over and above that. However, when we come to these uh, many additional taxes, the assessment on them was arbitrary, and this was where the ta- tax collectors could pad their pockets really nicely depending on their level of greed. And such taxes included a duty tax, which was levied on all imported and exported goods, as well as a tax for domestic trade. There were taxes to use the roads. There were taxes to cross bridges. <laughs> there were taxes, uh, aren't you glad that we don't have, I mean, we have road taxes, but we don't have to cross bridges. Well, I guess we pay for the bridges in the long run, don't <laughs> we? Tolls, yeah, I thought of this as him being kind of like a toll a, a toll booth person here, um, and what did they call it? the troll? you know the troll that was under the bridges <laughs> to collect the taxes uh, also, there were taxes to enter into market towns, there were taxes to use the harbors, there were taxes on pack animals, so in other words, there were taxes on your donkeys and and there were taxes on how many wheels and axles were on your carts so that's kind of comparable to our vehicle taxes and then they also charged a tariff on parcels and letters and on anything else that they could get away with so you know there's nothing new under the sun this sounds really familiar doesn't (laughs) now levi was working of course for rome but he was under the direct employment of herod antipas remember him he had no business sitting on he was actually the tetrarch of Galilee so Levi was working directly for him and he was half Idumean and half Samaritan Ooh, so he was really despised he was the Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded and Levi was working for him okay because Capernaum Capernaum was actually located at the juncture of two main highways Uh, And because it was also a main customs station, Levi's receipt of custom, as it's called here in the text, or in other words, his tax-collecting station, his particular station would have been a very busy one. You know, it's at the juncture of these two highways, et cetera. So there were many travelers uh, being taxed by Levi for use of the roads, for use of their goods, um, for their carts, their animals, their imports, their et- exports. They were being uh, taxed just for coming into Capernaum. You know, it, it was a market town. And these tax stations, by the way, were outdoors. And the, the publican generally sat cross-legged on an elevated platform. I didn't have a picture of that. But he sat up on an elevated platform or bench and um, outdoors. Now, to hold his position, Levi would have been required to speak both the local Aramaic and also Greek because there are so many Greek travelers passing through. So he had to to be uh, intelligent. He had to possess a a relatively high level of education because he had to keep records uh, to send to Rome or Herod. Um, He had to know math and he had to um, have bookkeeping skills. And you actually see this coming out in Matthew's Gospel. He's, um, you just can pick up on his astuteness when it comes to numbers and things like that. So he was an intelligent person. Now, because he was a tax collector for Rome, he was politically unaccepted by his own people. In... um, In Jewish writings, they were referred to, tax collectors were referred to as licensed robbers and also as, quote, beasts in human shape. Their money was considered tainted, and it was also said to defile anyone who accepted it. So if Levi went into the marketplace to buy something, um, a person who accepted his money was considered defiled. In fact, publicans were not allowed to witness in a court of law. I found out all these things this week, so I'm really glad the Lord gave us this extra lesson on Matthew, it's, it's worked out really nicely. But they couldn't witness. So this means that even as Matthew's sitting there on the juncture, you know, between the two highways, if he witnessed a murder, he could not even testify um, in, a, in a court of law regarding what he had seen. Because his word, his word was not to be trusted. Now, think of, just think about the grace of God in that particular situation. His word was not to be trusted by the Jewish people. The very ones who would not accept his witness in a court of law were the very ones to whom he was inspired by God Almighty to give his witness of Jesus Christ. Is that amazing? That's amazing, the grace of God. You see, believing Matthew's word has resulted in the salvation of countless millions of not only Jewish people, but also Gentiles. So that just gives me chills thinking about God's grace. Now, tax collectors were also religiously unaccepted. Uh, Rabbinical teaching gave absolutely no hope whatsoever to a man like Levi a man who had bribed for his position and was actually working for Rome. They gave him no hope hope for salvation. Publicans were considered unclean, just like who else? Lepers, remember? They're considered unclean, and they were totally barred from synagogue services. They could not set foot in a synagogue. Orthodox Jews would have nothing to do with them, and they would disown them from their own families. And, you know, you think about Levi, his name. Remember Levi, the Levitical priesthood? You know, he came from the Levites. And so this is, we're talking about a sound family of Jewish people down to, I I don't know, maybe his own family disowned him. Chances are they probably did when he chose to be a tax collector. Uh, the publican who is, uh, if you remember this parable of the publican and the Pharisee, the publican who was contrasted with the self-righteous Pharisee in Luke 18 is said to have been standing afar off. That's Luke 18:13. And the reason for that, the reason the publican was standing afar off is because any Jew who became a publican was not permitted, past. in in the temple in Jerusalem I'm talking about, he was not allowed past the court of the Gentiles. He was totally forbidden to enter into the inner court. They were not allowed to ever offer sacrifices. So they either had to ignore the burden of their own sin or just live under the weight of it, you know, without any seeming hope of forgiveness. Their own system of Judaism offered them no hope of forgiveness. Now, it's interesting to find that the Jewish Talmud, the Talmud, you know, is the commentary on the Torah, which is the first five books of the the Bible. The Talmud actually teaches that it was righteous. Get a load of this one. (laughs) It was righteous for someone to lie to a publican. It was righteous for someone to deceive a publican. Now, what would you think of the Bible if it said that? Mm, It's horrible, but that's what the Talmud taught. Now, the third way in which Levi, because of his profession, third way in which he would have been ostracized as an outcast, besides politically and and religiously, was, of course, socially. Orthodox Jews were forbidden to socialize with publicans. They were forbidden to travel with them. They were forbidden to do any kind of business with them, other than, of course, pay their taxes. Um, They were forbidden to give them anything they were forbidden to eat with them and have them as guests in their home or be guests in their home. That's why when Matthew hosts a uh, great feast, none of the righteous people of Israel would come to that feast. So who does he invite? Fellow tax collectors and other sinners like himself. They're the only ones who would come to his home and eat with him. So a tax collector might become rich, but he certainly paid a high price for his wealth especially if he was jewish now the fantastic thing is that although levi was completely unacceptable to the self-righteous jews and even to the vast majority of the common people of his day he was not seen as unacceptable to who to the lord jesus christ and aren't you thankful for that i wouldn't i mean i just can't i just can't ever get over the fact that that he accepted me I mean, I look back at my life, and I feel like I was the chief of sinners. And some of you probably feel that way, too. But who is unacceptable to the, the religious crowd is acceptable to the Lord Jesus Christ because we're told that when he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the receipt of custom, and he said unto him, follow him. And the Greek word for saw, isn't he just glanced at him and saw him? It's a word which means that he gazed intently upon him with a searching, penetrating look. And what do you think he saw when he looked? He went right to the heart. He saw the heart. This was a a look into Levi's soul. And what he saw there was obviously prepared soil. It was obviously a heart that had, had been tenderized by the years that he had apparently spent studying the scripture and of course by the convicting work of god the holy spirit jesus saw what he was looking for and we know this because when he and who here took the initiative who took the first step as is always the case jesus he took he he always is the one who comes to us he took the first step and said follow me we know that he what he saw he was looking for because when he said follow me Levi, instantly, I mean with no hesitation whatsoever, arose and followed him. See, he did exactly what the paralytic had done when Jesus said to him, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. What did the paralytic do? He got up. Salvation always takes a person up. Sin brings us down. But Jesus Christ takes us up. Now, was Levi saved at this time? He certainly was. The answer to that is yes. And how do we know this? We know this because he demonstrated it in at least three ways. First of all, he obeyed Jesus. He got up and he followed him. We talked about this last week, but inactive faith is what? Dead faith. True saving faith is demonstrated by action. And that action involves obedience. Obedience to God. Obedience to his word. And that's what he evidenced here. He obeyed God's word. (coughs) Secondly, he left everything in order to follow Jesus. A genuine disciple, a genuine follower of Christ, will not allow anything to stand in the way of following Jesus. As soon as Levi left his position... His decision was irreversible. You know, unlike uh, professional fishing or other occupations, you know, there's always fish to go back to. And we even see the, some of the fishermen apostles go back to fishing back in uh, John chapter 21 after the Lord's resurrection. But once you left your, your um, position as a publican, there was, there was no going back. Because when, once you abandoned that position, there was no shortage of greedy men uh, waiting to take over your franchise and sit in your place, so once Levi left his post, he he um, that was it. But he never looked back. He never looked back. He never ever regretted his decision to follow Jesus. He considered, you see, um, Christ's authority greater than Rome's authority. Now, why do you think that? Uh, why would you think that Levi? And now that he has been converted, I want to uh, revert to calling him Matthew. Let's call him Matthew from now on, which means gift of Jehovah. That's what what the name Matthew means, gift of Jehovah or gift of the Lord. Why do you think that he was willing to leave everything behind instantly, you know, without any hesitation? Well, obviously, the answer has to be that deep within his tortured soul— This Jewish man was spiritually hungry. His knowledge of the Old Testament had perhaps made him very discontent with the religious establishment of Israel. A lot of the people who really knew the Old Testament were very discontent with the religious establishment of Israel by the time of Christ. And he may have been very, very discontent and unhappy and dissatisfied with their hypocrisy and with their self-righteousness and their scorn for the common people. We find in Matthew's gospel account some of his key words are woe unto you, uh, scribes and Pharisees, and he he uses the word hypocrisy more than any of the other gospel records. Perhaps his knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures had caused him to be very closely watching Jesus. And what he saw... And what he heard and what he learned about him was nothing but positive, positive, positive when it came to lining up with Messianic scriptures. You see, this man knew the Old Testament. And remember, sitting at his customs booth, he would have heard all the latest news about Jesus as people are passing by, coming and going through Capernaum, north and south, east and west. He's hearing all kinds of accounts of Jesus And besides that, where did Jesus have his headquarters for his whole Galilean ministry? Right there in Capernaum. Where was Levi a customs agent? Right there in Capernaum. And Jesus had been performing all kinds of amazing miracles there in Capernaum. Perhaps he witnessed some of them. Levi may well have heard some of the Lord's teaching. To one so familiar with the Old Testament, the Lord's words would have had a familiar ring to them for Matthew. You know, it is really amazing when you think about how much of the Old Testament Matthew knew. He quoted from it, as I said, you know, some 130 times. He either quoted from it or alluded to it some 130 times in his 28 chapters. Uh, He quoted from not only the law, meaning the books of Moses, but he also quoted from the Psalms and he quoted from the prophets. So that That's all three divisions of the Old Testament. He knew the whole Old Testament scripture. And what does that tell us? Well, first of all, it tells us that he did a lot of studying of scripture on his own. Maybe he was raised in a very godly family and learned it as a child. Uh, but But certainly after he became a man and was a publican, he had to do all his studying on his own because we had learned already that he was prohibited from learning about the word of God in the synagogues. So he couldn't have heard the word of God taught or read in the synagogues. He was banned from them. Perhaps in his search to fill the empty void in his life, he had turned to the word of God. Um, He obviously believed in God, and he loved his word because when Jesus showed up, he recognized God in him. Remember what Jesus says? He says, "You." to the scribes and pharisees he says to them you don't know me because you don't know god you don't know me because you don't love god matthew knew jesus and believed jesus why obviously he believed in god and he believed in god's word and we know this because when jesus said follow me he did probably for years he had been burdened with the weight of his own sin and he knew that along with that command follow me came a promise of the forgiveness of his sins I believe he recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, and I'm sure he was shocked, absolutely shocked, when Jesus intently looked at him and said, follow me. He, a with peace. he did. He, he replaced a burden with peace. That's a good way to put it. It's amazing. Um, when, you, when you read through Matthew's gospel, do that sometime. Just read through it and just keep thinking about what this man used to be. Incredible. Incredible. Now, a third way that we know that his conversion was real is because it was evidenced by his immediate desire to do what? To what? To tell, tell, to tell, to tell all of his fellow sinners about the Savior. His joy, who does this remind you of, anybody? The woman at the well. His joy, just like the sinful Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4 His joy was so overflowing. Remember how she left her water pot? What did he leave behind? His tax booth. (laughs) His joy was so overflowing that he couldn't wait to introduce his fellow man to Jesus. So he quickly hosted a large banquet at his house and invited many publicans and sinners. And as I said, they were the only ones who would have come. They were the only ones who uh, would associate with a man like him. True faith, you see, desires to bring others to Jesus, right? True faith. When you have true, genuine, saving faith, you want to tell other people so they can experience the peace and the joy and the forgiveness of sins that you have. Uh, This is exactly what Andrew did. Remember, who did he go and get? His brother, Peter. This is exactly his brother, Peter. This is what John did. He ran and got his brother, James. And this is what Philip did. Who did Philip go and fetch? Nathaniel and the Samaritan woman went and f- f- fetched, fetched all the citizens of Sychar, of her village. Um, and this is what the friends of the paralytic did. And now this is also, we see, what Matthew did. And that, which is wonderful to see, is that we are told there were many. Mark 2.15 tells us that there were many publicans and sinners, and uh, Luke's account tells us that there was a great company of them. Many, many people. This is one reason we know he was rich. He had a big house and he had lots of food (laughs) because there was a great prostitute of publicans and other sinners. What would other sinners include? Well, drunkards, um, thieves perhaps, prostitutes, all all kinds of the quote-unquote social riffraff. They came to Matthew's great feast, and after meeting and hearing Jesus for themselves, it tells us this is in Mark 2.15, Make sure you note this one. Many followed him. The Lord, you see, found far greater fruit among this crowd than he did, you know, than he ever experienced among the self righteous religious group. Right? Right. Now, we also learn that Matthew was a man of humility. Did you realize that there is a. There they are at the feast, okay? Did you realize that there is never, ever one word from the mouth of Matthew in all the Gospels? I mean, we hear some of the other disciples say things from time to time. There's never one word from Matthew. So what we know about him is only, you know, but yet God chose him. You know, he was silent throughout the whole time of of the Lord's ministry, but God chose him to pick up a pen and write the very first book of of the New Testament so yeah, maybe he was a better listener but I think he was silent because of his humility you know I think he felt like Paul that he was just the chief of sinners and who was he to to say anything so he just kept totally in the background and you know some of you are like that some of you are just quiet people right Um, but that doesn't mean that God can't use you look how he used Matthew some of you are quiet but you can pick up a pen and write That's what he did, and he speaks to us yet today. All right, anyway, back to we learn that he was a man of humility because in in his own account he does not even mention that he left everything behind to follow Jesus. He doesn't mention that at all. But Luke tells us, Luke fills us in. Luke 5.28 says, and he left all, A-L-L. Not only did he leave his position, um, but he also left his home, and he apparently had quite a home, and he left it. He doesn't. He also doesn't tell us that that feast was hosted by him. He only says Matthew tells us in Matthew nine ten that Jesus sat at meat at the house or something like that. But he doesn't tell us that it's his that it was his house. You know, he doesn't mention that the feast was at his house and that he was the host. So we know he was a humble person. And how, why did he hold this feast? Well, he held it for two reasons. He held it to honor Jesus who had just saved his soul and he also of course held it in order to introduce many of his fellow sinners to the lord so anyway and it's also luke who tells us that this feast was an enormous one it was huge perhaps he went into the highways and byways and invited every beggar and every leper and i don't know maybe invited everybody in capernaum who was considered the unclean the riffraff of society but it was huge according to luke in fact, Matthew only refers to himself twice in all of his gospel account. The first, one, the first time he mentions himself is in this account of his call by Jesus, where he puts the emphasis really in this account is not on him. The emphasis in this account is on uh, Jesus as the, the forgiver of sinners. See, that's what it follows, you know. We just had the forgiveness of sins through the paralytic story, you know that Jesus has the power and authority to forgive sins, and Matthew is continuing with that same theme, the emphasis on Christ as the forgiver of sins, when he says, and look, he, he saved this, uh, this publican named Matthew. You notice also that Matthew, the two times he refers to himself, the second one is over in uh, chapter 10, verse 3, where he's listing the apostles, the 12 apostles. He just mentions himself, but it's also interesting that he... Um, He calls himself Matthew the Publican in that list. If you want to look at it, Matthew 10, 3, he refers to himself as Matthew the Publican. Now, you know, in all the lists of the apostles, never is an apostle connected with his former occupation, except this one case where Matthew is writing about himself in a list, and he calls himself a Publican. I mean, he knew and recognized where he came from. He never forgot that you know, what Jesus brought him out from. But he never does in those two places. He doesn't refer to himself as Levi. He put that old name behind him, and he calls himself Matthew. Now, by the way, there were, there are, I should say, there are three tax collector, Jewish tax collectors, specifically mentioned to us in the gospel accounts. And each of them graciously received the forgiveness of their sins. There was, of course, Matthew. He's the first. He was a tax collector, forgiven of his sins. Then there was the publican that I mentioned a little while ago in uh, the Lord's parable of Luke 18, who very well may have been a real man in a real-life incident that the Lord knew about, even though he used it as a parable. But that publican went away justified. Remember, he's the one who said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, and he left. Justified, whereas the Pharisee did not, because he was so self-righteous. And then, who is the third publican? I've already mentioned him in this lesson. Little Zacchaeus, little Zacchaeus climbed up in the sycamore tree, and he, as I already mentioned, was a chief tax collector. He also was uh, forgiven for of his sins by the Lord Jesus. Now, in addition to these three specifically named tax collectors, we do find in the in the Gospels. Uh, a number of unnamed tax collectors who come to Jesus on other occasions. And you can read about those. I'm not sure this is in your notes, but Luke 15.1, if you want to jot that down, and Luke 7.29, many tax collectors come to Jesus and are forgiven of their sins. And then the third place is, uh, well, we we read about this one in Matthew 21.31, On one occasion, which Matthew himself recorded, and I'm sure he loved recording these words of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord was admonishing the religious rulers, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees, and he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, he said, Verily I say unto you that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John the Baptist came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not, but the publicans and the harlots believed him. Now, speaking of the belief of this unbelief of the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that Jesus, with his disciples, accepted the invitation of the Jewish publican named Levi and entered into Levi's home and actually sat down to eat with a great number of common sinners, what do you think their reaction was? They were absolutely outraged. How dare he even claim to be a true Jew, much less a teacher of righteousness, much less the Messiah, much less God. Remember, he had just forgiven sins and who but God. So he's even claiming to be God. How dare he claim these things when he rubbed shoulders which, with such low lives? You know, table fellowship back in those days, table fellowship was regarded as a sign of intimacy. And and this was scandalizing to them. And they wasted no time, of course, in presenting their criticism to the other disciples of the Lord. Of course, they didn't go to Matthew, but they went to the other ones, and they they, um, were probably hoping to shake their faith in their master and get them to cease following him. You see, by their association with him, and and by their, it says that they were also with the Lord eating with the publicans and, and other sinners so by associating with Jesus and also by eating with the publicans and the other sinners the religious rulers wanted the disciples to know that they were guilty also of transgressing the religious rules about separating from such people and so I think the scribes and Pharisees went to the Lord's disciples trying to shake their faith in him you know, he can't possibly be the Messiah and, and rub shoulders with this kind of people. You see, if the, if the Lord's disciples, and they might have been shocked, too, that he called a man such as Levi a publican. You know, calling them was one thing. They were fishermen, and they were whatever else Philip and Nathaniel were, but um, not tax collectors. So they probably were pretty shocked when he turned to Matthew and called him. So if the the scribes and Pharisees could get the Lord's disciples to turn from him, it would gain the attention of the common people. You know, he only has a handful of fellows as his disciples, so if they turned, then the common people might also turn from him. I mean, they they would think, could Jesus possibly be the Messiah if he had no true followers except uh, such low-life sinners? Now, when Jesus heard of their outrage at such a supposedly unnatural and incomprehensible act as eating with sinners, he made his answer directly to them. You will notice that they didn't make their criticism directly to him, did they? They went through his disciples. But when he answered their uh, criticism, he went directly to them. And his response consists of three parts. I made one in blue, one in green, and one in red there. First of all, he quoted from a well-known proverb of that day. And that was the part where he said, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. That was a proverb back in those days. Secondly, he quoted from scripture when he said, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. That is uh, Hosea 6.6. 6. And thirdly, he then gave a statement of his own mission what his mission was here on earth. He said, For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. As the great physician of man's eternal soul, the Lord was well aware of the disease of sin, gripping those with whom he ate. But he was carrying out his mission as, as their divine healer. If the Savior of mankind, if the Savior Refused to associate with sinners, think about this, it would have been as foolish as a doctor refusing to associate with sick people. D. Edmund Hybert states this in his book. He says, quote, his mission meant that his work was not with those who had no admitted need of restoration, but with acknowledged sinners. The healthy should not condemn the doctor for going to the sick, right? But that's exactly what they were doing, although they aren't really healthy. They just think they're healthy, these uh, scribes and Pharisees, these critics of the Lord. The gospel of salvation in Christ is not for those who are quote-unquote good and healthy in their own sight. Instead, it's for those who know that they are sin-sick, Those who recognize their poverty of spirit, that they're hopeless and helpless apart from Jesus Christ. A physician certainly cannot cure a person who will not come to him to receive his help. We all know that. In the spiritual realm, it's it's exactly the same, except that the Lord Jesus is the one who, he's the great physician, and guess what he does? He makes house calls. He's the physician who calls on the sick. He's the one who beckons them to his cure for their fatal disease. And, and by the way, those, those meeting him in Matthew's home that day represented the section, the, the part of Jewish society who could not have contacted with Jesus in the synagogues. Why? They could never have met Jesus in the synagogues because they weren't allowed in them. So he went to them. He made the house call to them. The religious scribes and Pharisees believed themselves to be the elite, you know, of God's chosen people. They were self-assured that all their meticulous um, observances of the Mosaic laws and all the rabbinical traditions, they were sure that all those things made them pleasing to God. They did not think of themselves as sinners at all. They would never have categorized themselves with with Levi, such a man as Levi, Levi, a publican. And therefore, they saw no need to repent. That's why they didn't listen to John the Baptist either when he said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They, they did not see that they needed to repent. Now, of course, Jesus knew that this was a strange concept to them. It shouldn't have been, but it was. They just didn't think this way. Um, that a genuine heart of repentance, they didn't think that a genuine heart of repentance was more important than any observance of the Mosaic law. So what did he tell them to do? He said to them, go and learn. <laughs> in other words, you guys think you know the Old Testament so well, you need to go back and, and learn what it means in, Hosea, in such a passage as Hosea 6.6 6, where God says, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. He was rebuking them by reminding them that God's own word called for them to be merciful and forgiving and not judgmental and not condemning. I mean, it was back in Hosea, the Old Testament scriptures, which they prided themselves so much on knowing. God, you see, desires compassion more than he does sacrifice. Without compassion and mercy all of the rituals and all of the ceremonies and all the sacrifices in the whole world are totally meaningless and insignificant. God is never, ever pleased with mere religious routine. He is not pleased with you know us going to church and just going through some kind of a ritual routine every Sunday. That does not please him at all. He's never pleased with that kind of thing apart from an inner, sincere love for him. It's always the heart. This is what we'll see over and over again as we study the Sermon on the Mount. Over and over again, he looks at the heart. The fact of the matter is that if the Pharisees were the spiritual leaders of the people as they should have been, then they would have been the one hosting the feast. You know, they'd be hosting feasts all over the place, all over Israel, trying to reach and to bring to God the lost sinners of the world, right? You know, they, they would show mercy to the lost not judgment although they did not see it they were just as paralyzed by their own sin as the paralytic who had been lowered through the roof of Peter's house and they were just as unclean as Levi the despised tax collector but of course they didn't see it the savior Jesus is only for the spiritually sick who desire to be healed he's only for the spiritually poor who desire to be rich for the spiritually hungry who desire to be satisfied. And he is for the spiritually dead who long to be made alive. And these were the desires of Levi's heart. Levi the son of Al- Alphaeus. And as a consequence he became a brand new creature in Christ. Old things were passed away and behold all things became new. He became from Levi the publican he became Matthew the apostle. He became Matthew, the gospel writer, Matthew, the first author of the New Testament, Matthew, the faithful to the end Christian. It's really a marvelous, marvelous testimony of the grace of God that he used Matthew, Levi, formerly Levi, to write the gospel account which would appeal most to the Jewish people, because the Jewish people would have been the ones above all the others, more than the Greeks and the Romans and anybody else who had such a great hatred of him when he was a tax collector. But after all, this is exactly the same principle as we see with Saul. You know, it was God's grace which so greatly used a man to build up the church. You know, no other man has been used, has been used as much as, As Paul to build up the church, Um, but yet he was one of the greatest men who was actually persecuting the church when he was Saul. So the same principle, how God can take a terrible, terrible sinner and use him for his glory in great and mighty ways. So don't ever, ever think that you're beyond whatever you've done in your past, that God can't possibly use you. All he's looking for is your heart and your availability, and there's no telling what he can do with your life. So what do we know about Matthew? I'm almost through. We know he was once called Levi, and he was a, uh, a despised tax collector. He was an outcast of society, but yet he was a man who had many fellow sinner friends. He did have a lot of friends in that, in that community, didn't he? because he invites them all to his home. So he obviously had a lot of tax collector friends. And, and, you know, I think when the, when the Lord Jesus ever, if he ever wanted a man to go to the outcast, who do you think would be the first one to volunteer? Matthew. When he sent them out, I bet he went straight to all the publicans and prostitutes and sinners. You could just see it. We know that he was a man with considerable wealth, which he left behind. We know that um, he earned his wealth in a non-respectable manner. Uh, He was apparently, well, he was a man who had compromised by working for Israel's hated oppressors. And yet, we know also that he was a man who knew the Old Testament and understood God's promises of a coming Messiah. We also know that when Jesus said two little words, follow me, Matthew was willing to instantly leave everything in order to obey his new employer. We know that Matthew became a man of great integrity, As I said, he was a humble man, a man of great humility, a man who embraced in love, just like his master, he embraced the outcasts of society, a man who had no room for hypocrisy. He totally hated hypocrisy. He became a man of tremendous faith and of total surrender to the Lord Jesus. And thus he was a man who has served us as a wonderful example of the forgiving grace of God of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew reminds us, and he gives all of us sinners great hope, doesn't he? He gives us great hope that the Lord delights in taking some of the most lowly and despicable people in this world and calling them to himself, redeeming them, um, giving them a new heart, setting their feet upon a rock, and putting a new song in their hearts, and then using them in absolutely incredible ways for his eternal kingdom. It's interesting to learn that tradition tells us that Matthew ministered to the Jewish people in Israel for 15 years following the Lord's resurrection, and that then he went into many other countries, such as Ethiopia, Macedonia, Syria, Persia, Parthia, Media, before he was then put to death for his faith. It's not agreed how he died. It's not agreed, so I won't tell you how he died a martyr's death, but he did. It is also rather interesting, now get a load of this one, it's also rather interesting that tradition states that his martyr's death occurred on September 21st. You know what day today is? <laughs> and I thought that was very interesting. Um, also, and you can't be dogmatic about this, but he was, he was the son of Alpheus, and there is another apostle named James the Less, who was also the son of Alphaeus. So did Matthew have a brother who was also an apostle, as we have with Andrew and Peter and James and John? I don't know. There could have been two Alphaeuses with sons, but that's an interesting thing to speculate about. And if James the Less was his brother, then it really gets interesting because James the Less had another brother named Joseph who was well-known in the group. Uh, christian community and they also had a mother named mary who was actually at the at the cross with the other marys so it gets really so i don't know but it's very very interesting so that's what we know about matthew let's close in prayer father thank you for having chosen the humble the lowly the weak the not many mighty the weak of this world as your disciple servants so that there is no question about the source of their power which literally changed the world 11 men literally changed the world and we know that wasn't because of their that they themselves were great and mighty but it was your truth and your power working within them and the same is true for all of those that you have chosen as your vessels that it's not our strength it's not our it's not our cleverness it's not our personalities which contain the power to reach out and minister to people and see them saved. It's the power of your word. And the power is in, in your son, and the power is in your Holy Spirit. Your strength is made perfect in our weakness. Thank you, Lord, for that truth. Thank you that you came to earth in order to seek and to save that which was lost. People like Nicodemus the Pharisee and, and the Samaritan woman, at the well, and the paralytic lowered through Peter's roof, and Levi, the despised tax collector. And like each of us in this very room who know you personally as our Lord and Savior, we cannot thank you enough for your grace. We love you, Lord Jesus. Go with each woman here this week. Use her her as your light and salt to reach other people and bring us all back safely next Tuesday, For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.